Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back to a planned two-part series covering the Bell Island boom. In the prior episode, I told you the story of the bizarre aerial explosion that, to be honest, sounds completely made up. But it isn't. The events, as I described them in that episode, did play out in and around a small island in Newfoundland. So after digesting the narrative telling of the story, a question still remains. What the hell happened? Well, as it turns out, the answer to that question is both disputed and one that takes us to some really strange places. Of course, we have the official explanation. The explosion was caused by a rare type of lightning called ball lightning. But as I made it clear in that prior episode, that explanation has some big problems. Perhaps that's why there's so many alternate theories that still float to this day. That's what we're going to take a look at. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, I've invited two of my friends to help us break this mystery down. In a short moment, we'll be joined by Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess from the Astonishing Legends podcast. Together, we'll discuss the many theories that compete with the Canadian government's explanation. So the Bell Island boom, you, you both had a chance to listen to what I recorded earlier and you read and watched a little bit about it. Have either of you ever heard of this or remember ever hearing of this event prior to our talk? Um, for me, it was new It was new material to me. I don't know about you, Forrest. Did you heard it before? Well, you know, I, as I was saying earlier, I, I, you know, to you, I'd heard the name Bell Island, but really didn't know much about uh, any of the details. You know, it's kind of like uh, <laughs> Scott, we were joking around earlier. And Scott made a joke about the uh, the Bell Witch, you know, which I've heard more about. And certainly, you know, Bell is a pretty common name, but uh, you'll hear something like that, and uh, not I can't I couldn't tie it with anything. So a lot of this is new. Uh, I would say most all of it is new, new, new to me, but pretty fascinating. Yeah, and b- before we get into the the different theories that we're going to discuss, just as far as what happened, to me it's also incredible that, for one, it was the, the government investigated, the actual fire inspector who investigated has spoke to the media afterwards, and he even had a, a collection of evidence or, or of things that he collected from the Bickford farm, which was ground zero of the blast, that he showed to people afterwards, and there was even photos of them in the press, but when... After it all went down in the, the second and third investigation, apparently all that stuff that he collected from the firm was confiscated from him. So the whole thing to me, for one, it's an absolute mystery as to what could have happened, but it just seems like there's a lot of little things that happened within it. Oh, yeah. No, no. The, the uh, you know, that's always the, the way it seems to go is the confiscation of, uh, well, Roswell. <laughs> you know, somebody has a few artifacts uh, that, you know, somehow get out in the paper. And there's a few photographs. And then in, in the course of the next few days, those seem to get uh, confiscated by uh, official sources. And but what? Yeah, that was an interesting aspect is that, you know, if it's just lightning, Maybe you have the local weather guys talking about it, or the local paper comes out and takes a picture of the uh, the you know the farm and the destruction there. 
But once the government takes an interest in it, it's like, why are you guys interested? <laughs> now it takes a different turn. Yeah, and the, the Russian sergeant or whatever who came, apparently what ended up coming out was the reason that that Russian soldier or, or sergeant or whatever was there investigating was he was working on some kind of way to harness energy and you know for to improve the kind of the batteries and stuff that were being used at the time so apparently he had an interest in the way ball lightning worked so that was kind of the the official reason he was there but very little came out of any of that and it just seems so to me it seems so unusual being someone in atlanta canada to have any interest even from you know an american to come here and, and poke around is a big deal let alone you know having russian military elite coming down to look at holes in the ground and a bunch of dead chickens <laughs> yeah when you put it like it's that doesn't sound, yeah, it doesn't sound interesting well certainly yes uh, you know the destruction on a farm uh you know things like that happen it, it made me think of a uh, when i was in high school uh or maybe even junior high i remember a uh, a kid in my neighborhood we had a kind of a bad electrical storm you know we don't get a lot of them but you know occasionally we'll get lightning well I, I guess a bolt of lightning had hit an antenna that was attached to his house uh that most people had because that's how you got your your tv over the air and it was so direct that he told me i remember at the time that uh, he saw a like a little bolt of electricity uh uh electrical bolt shoot out from the outlet and go fly across the room and hit the opposite wall and it was about he said about 20 feet away and it left a, a burn mark uh so occasionally things like that do happen where it's kind of you know i guess yeah you think he said is, is a toaster fried itself it uh you know nothing hor nothing nothing crazy like the um the glass uh fuses uh at the bickford barn shooting out like bullets but that, but hearing that, it's like, well, no, I could believe that. There was the one gentleman who who said that the electricity shot out of his outlet about eighteen inches on his table, right? Was that Bickford Senior? That was the. This was an, know, was another it? guy who lived, uh, I think, about a kilometer away. He, the okay. way he described it, he was sitting down eating a sandwich at the kitchen table when it happened. His TV just exploded in front of him, and then it, he described it as like a blue flame, almost like what would be coming out of a blowtorch, coming out of the outlets about eighteen inches, and it and it went on for a couple seconds, like during the during the actual boom sounding. Wow. Uh, a friend of mine, her dad. This is this would be a New England. Uh, in Maine, and as, just you describing somebody sitting at the table. I guess he was at the the dining room table, uh, finishing up dinner, and the same thing happened. They had a bad storm, and it it fried uh, the fuse panel. And uh, he said it. Yeah, he could see it shoot out uh, from. I believe. Uh, I think he he was an electrician by trade, so uh, he was pretty familiar with what electric electricity could do. And even then, you know, that kind of startled him because it's pretty rare when that happens, but. Again, it's possible. Mm -hmm. And I think thinking of any one individual part of it, like the, you know, the stuff coming, the, the blue flame coming out of the outlet, any one piece is kind of explainable. It's it's with something like this is when you put it all together that it really seems weird. And in, in my story, I, I started by starting a, a couple months earlier with a series of booms that were being blamed on supersonic jets across the east coast of the United States. And just given the timing, it seems to me that whatever was going on with the booms across eastern U.S. surely must have been the same thing that happened in Newfoundland. Because if you look on a, at, on a map, as the line goes up eastern United States, it leads right to Belle Island, Newfoundland, which is almost the easternmost point of, of Newfoundland. So... It, it it must be related somehow, but what they um, the booms that were happening 
in the eastern U.S. that they blamed on the supersonic jets had nothing to do with any type of electrical anomaly. Right. And well, and they said in, in the materials that you sent us, I noticed that they had said that they could, you know, they could attribute about two thirds of them to aircraft. Mm -hmm. But there was another third and they were talking about, I guess, 700, right? Or so. Give or, so, give or take, yeah. Yeah, so it was another third of them that they had no explanation for. Even attributing them to aircraft was hotly debated. This one scientist had graphed when all the booms occurred and compared it to when the planes were in the sky. And a lot of the booms were happening when planes weren't in the sky. But on, say, um, during holidays when there'd be a lot of planes in the sky, like, say, for example, Christmas, there's a lot of traffic going on in the sky and all that stuff. There was actually barely any boom. So uh, one of his theories was that the, the, the military was involved and he was comparing when the booms occurred for, uh, to when the military would be most active. He believed that the military would slow down what they're doing around Christmas, celebrating the holiday. And his evidence shows that the booms completely dropped off during holidays were much less on weekends, although there's more flight traffic there. So it's I don't know if I believe that it was caused by supersonic jets personally. No, and I, you know, I saw that clip, I think, or I saw something about that where the guy was talking about that, and that is, that is super interesting. I mean, it definitely would intimate a human connection to the origin mm -hmm. of it, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But it is weird where the, mil the Navy investigated, they blamed it on the planes, they moved the planes a little bit, and then it just completely stopped for two and a half weeks, and then the Bell Island boom happened. Right. It just to me, it all seems related, but I just can't figure out what it could be. Well, the I, fact that uh, guys, uh, you know, from supposedly Los Alamos showing up, uh, taking notes from everybody, and I, I think those are the ones; those are the guys that confiscated maybe the uh, the Bigford artifacts or the, or the yeah. fire captain's artifacts that he'd collected. Mm -hmm. Again, that to me that puts a different spin on it. Why, if it's just you know natural weather phenomenon, or even sonic booms, doesn't seem like they it, it would interest them. Well, see, Forrest, I disagree with you there because what I think is I think there can be both offensive and defensive reasons for them to show up because if this thing is happening, then one of the first things you do if you don't know what it is is you send your best and brightest to figure out what it is and also is it a threat. Is it a threat that originated from whatever enemy at that time, whether it's the Soviet Union or what have you, or if it's Mother Nature, how can we harness this and use it to threaten the, those people <laughs> that we thought <laughs> might be using it on us. I yeah, no, no, I, I, and I, I agree. I, I accept that. Uh, I think you know when you said it's, it's, it's a natural phenomenon. Yeah. Yes, they might go investigate it, but I think that's a long ways away. You know, what I'm saying that there's less reason for, in my reasoning that uh, uh, if it was just a natural thing or maybe giant ball lightning, that uh, you know that they would basically want to go check it out because it's after the fact. They might go, uh, you know, take a look at it. But why? You know, what I'm saying it, it seems like there's more of a human interaction and element with it for that. You know, to get them to show up. Yeah, and this apparently was the next day that they showed up. Yeah, really, the very next day. So we're talking about uh, John Warren and Robert Fryman, right? From the. Yeah, exactly. I could I couldn't find conclusively that it was the next day. I found I think three different sources, but uh, two of them said that week. One of them said the next day. So, right. So we got the the plasma physicist and the weapons design engineer. I, it, it is pretty ominous 
<laughs> like with these two guys showing up. Well, I mean, it almost sounds like a Men in Black situation. It you know, does. Especially the way they were dressed. Uh, you know, when you—that's the first thing I always hear about. It's like anything strange happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what year was this again? This was seventy-eight. So just uh, just at the end of the Cold War. Right. Right. So the Men in Black were already around, right, Forrest? They've been showing up prior to that. Oh they? yeah, I believe so. Probably. Uh, well, you know, if you want again, not to go off the deep end here, but I think there's instances of them throughout history, you know, in different forms, uh, different forms or another. But I think you're the ones that you think about, the ones in the black hats and the black suits, white shirts, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, probably since uh, you know Roswell and beyond. 1947 was a big turning year for, of course, UF, ufology. But of course, things had been happening prior to that as well. Right, and I guess my thing was, and it's funny that you mentioned the Men in Black because with 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 Warren and Fryman showing up, and then asking that guy, and I don't know if it was Bickford or whoever was showing them around, if if he had security clearance. No, I think it was the fire inspector. Oh, right, right. It was like they wanted to talk about it, but they couldn't. So you know, for me, I, you know, there's a lot of theories, obviously, and I've only taken a, a cursory look at this, but <laughs> for for me, there. They're coming out of curiosity, not because they had it under control. And their curiosity is related to whether or not someone else had it under control or whether it was a natural phenomenon. And they wanted to talk about that more because they're in the business of trying to harness thermonuclear energy or whatever it is that they're up to back at Los Alamos. But they can't talk to anybody about it because they don't have clearance. And so there's all kinds of interesting things about that. And then on top of that, this would be a good time to send men in black instead of a couple of guys whose names we can all look up (laughs) but i guess they didn't which is why i was asking about when they first started being seen you know taking away the the mythological appearances of the men in black that are you know in cave paintings or something but like coming back to like (laughs) right the, the reality of maybe roswell was roswell was 47 right wasn't it yeah yeah. So it was a long time so. before this, and Men in Black were showing up not too long after Roswell, prominently, I would think. So if they had, if the government had the opportunity to send someone anonymously, and I'm talking out of school here, I've done less, Forrest and I both have done less research than we usually do before we record, but like, it seems to me that they, the government certainly could have sent somebody weird and ominous and otherworldly to investigate it anonymously as opposed to these two guys who one of them in his picture literally reminded me of the guy, the scientist from Starman who let the alien go. <laughs> Charles. Oh, Thompson. Uh, yes. Yeah. I love that actor. <laughs> yeah. No, no. He's great. Uh, no, you, you know, as far as men in black, if you're going to go, you know, real traditional here, as far as, you know, UFO sightings or anything kind of strange, the ones that show up are not, you know, clearly not, of this government, you could say, is right, that there's, right. you know, no, that that's the, the common description is that these people did not seem normal physically and, right. and manner wise as well. This seems like, yes, it's, it's an investigation. You know, you, you would, you know, if we'd been in the eighties, you would expect, you know, Mulder and Scully to show up. Yeah. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing too threatening, but it has to be checked out. And, you know, what was interesting though is, yeah, how did they hear about it? I'm not, I didn't, that part I didn't, um, I uh, didn't come across. Do you, do you know how they found out about it? They had um, the American Defense Department had picked it up with their satellites, just the amount of uh, light that was output 
being um, be surpassing the light that would have been output during the the bombing of Hiroshima. So I believe that as wow. as soon as it happened, the Canadian as well as American defense departments picked it up on satellite because again, this was at the end of the Cold War, so they were actively watching for you know crazy stuff to happen. So it was pretty much as soon as it happened, the wheels started turning, and this would have happened, and this would have investigation would have been done. And when the Americans came from Los Alamos, they were in the company of Canadian um, Canadian military as well. So it was a, a joint investigation, as well as when the the Russian sergeant came, he was accompanied by Canadian military representatives as well. So it all seemed fairly collaborative in a sense. Although when the investigations happened, when people described speaking to the the guys from Los Alamos. One thing that I, I'm just trying to picture how this happens in my head, it sounds so eerie, was when the guys from Los Alamos, they wanted to talk to each other, they would step away from whoever they were interviewing and they would either whisper very quietly or they'd write things on paper and show each other back and forth so the person oh couldn't hear them. Oh my God, and, that's awesome. Yeah, and, <laughs> and if, if you know what, a, if like you're, you guys aren't from Atlanta, Canada, if you go to a small little town in Atlanta, Canada and, and pull a stunt like that i can't imagine what the people are going to think of it <laughs> yeah right uh, that's yeah. that's amazing well you know I, I that to me the collaboration again is indicative of it being unknown regardless so i mean if you take that and you put the unknown label across the whole thing then to me you're coming down to really just a couple of really two choices a natural an unexplained natural phenomenon or an alien or a UFO or some kind of thing that we don't understand with science that's beyond us. It, it's to me, it can only be those two things when you've got these, you know, disparate governments collaborating. Unless, of course, one of the governments is pretending. It's like, hey, I want to come look at what our secret weapon did to your island. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. One of the things that I thought about was, you know, we just did a show on Lake Baikal in, in Siberia, and the, there, was, there were some things going on there that were related to methane. And one of the things that I was wondering is if there was a possibility of a quick burn-off methane explosion from all the iron mines and, and that sort of thing. But I don't know that that would explain the sounds all up and down the coast. That might be a, a one-off event in a mining area but I can't see it happening all up and down the east coast of the of North America. Right, with the electrical discharge and all that, yeah. If it was just a pure methane explosion, it wouldn't have expl- it wouldn't explain well, for one, it would have to be pure coincidence that this happened during the time the rest of the booms that were very similar, except much weaker in, in intensity, were happening. But it also, yeah, the electrical stuff wouldn't be um, wouldn't make much sense. The other thing too, one one of the theories, if if you believe that the military was involved in some ways, one of the theories is that it was some type of weather modification test. And I think where where this is coming from is for one, you know, the mili- the, the the government's investigating and all this stuff, but also there was a several and i think the the number was somewhere in around 15 separate reports of people describing a metallic tasting haze in the air 
Yes, I read that. That was fascinating. Yeah, and I just if, if it was weather modification and you know cloud seeding and all that stuff, I don't know a lot about it, but it has to do with you know dropping certain types of chemicals or or small grains of metals into the clouds and somehow that makes the weather do stuff. But it just seems like that could possibly be in the in the ballpark of possible. Would you right. also well, you, experience that from ionization, though, from a, from a lightning strike forest? Do you know that? It's not something I would know. Well, I, I know that uh, when you're close by when you smell ozone, and then when people have experienced ball lightning, which is extremely rare, by the way, uh, but but there's a lot of things about this, the description of this uh, happening, especially by, uh, well, he's he was the kid at the time, Let's see. Oh, Darren Bickford. Uh, Bickford, it, yeah. That, yeah, that was his grandfather's farm where that was kind of the epicenter of that. And he was riding his bike home and saw it uh, firsthand. A lot of his description sounds like ball lightning. But yeah, so sometimes they say that there's a, a sulfurous smell, you know, and, and I know that if you've ever smelled ozone, it's a very distinctive smell. But I've never really heard of a taste except that, yeah, when you're doing cloud seeding, I think it's silver nitrate. That's, um, uh, that, you know, that they will, you, you need clouds to begin with, uh, but it's cloud seeding. So before we wrap it up, what we'll do is we'll go through just the, the main uh, theories of what caused the boom and just in a few words say whether or not we think that this could even be possible or, or probable, starting with it just simply being ball lightning or some type of natural weather event. To me, it seems too powerful and too anomalous as far as this the what was seen on the island that day and the fact that there were the other booms across the the eastern coast of the united states i can't see it being something as simple as a natural even a very freak rare natural weather event yeah i guess i it's it's the electrical part of it you know the sort of emp part of it electromagnetic pulse part of it does seem unlikely to be natural but i guess if I was going to entertain the idea of it being natural, if it was connected to some sort of subterranean origin, I would believe it more than something that like came down from the sky in terms of a natural event. Interesting. I, I, I think know. for myself, uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree. You know, out of all the natural freak kind of things happening, to me it sounds the most like ball lightning. However, as Jordan brings up, it's it's – the the size of it, the amount of destruction. Now I've heard you know people being have having described ball lightning as you know lasting for a few seconds, and then exploding. Sometimes it doesn't hurt people. Sometimes it does. Uh, sometimes it is destructive. So yes, it relates to that. But just all the other the circumstances. Uh, you know the the scientists showing up, people taking interest in this, uh, the you know things being confiscated. It's just. It seems maybe that there is more of a man-made interaction with this, but yeah, if 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 I had to, you know, I could, I was restricted to saying it was uh, only a man-made occurrence, then I would say ball lightning, ball lightning most likely, but. Uh, it doesn't fit the entire bill for me. So. No, even the weather that day, meteorologists have spoke about this and said that the the cloud there were very small amounts of clouds and just the the weather that day wouldn't have supported a serious lightning event. Where ball even ball lightning, rare ball lightning is usually accompanied by a regular storm. Apparently, I'm not an expert on it, but but from the meteorologist reports that I read, had described it being not conducive to ball lightning or any type of lightning or thunder that day. Yeah, usually I believe it usually is connected. There is there's usually a a storm 
you know, happening somewhere around there, which, you know, is kind of, uh, again, the perfect, <laughs> the perfect storm conditions to generate ball lightning. But, uh, yeah, it didn't sound, in this case, it didn't sound like that. It didn't, it didn't kind of, again, doesn't fit the bill completely for me. And just like it doesn't fit the bill, just like it being man-made or military, we, we went through quite a few of the different options, like weather modification or mind control or, or just some bizarre type of weapons uh, weapons development or testing. My thought is if it was a secret military thing that was happening, it wouldn't make sense for the Americans, the Canadians, and the Canadians and the Russians to all be here looking at it together i guess but i guess there could be spies and that sort of thing so uh, to me it just seems too bizarre to be natural but to think that it could be some man-made accident that they're trying to figure out that just seems also it's so science fiction and the fact that it's set at the end of the cold war as they're developing you know laser beams and all this stuff it is just very science fiction and just seems too unreal to have happened on a in a small on a small island in Atlantic Canada. Well, exactly. I mean, that's the thing is that not only there's destruction, the cone-shaped holes in the ground, I guess 3 of them. That's pretty weird. <laughs> that's like, you know, is that's not, I've not really heard or read about uh, that happening. Again, we, we as we talked about earlier, sure, things getting charred, blackened, uh, even things, uh, you know, bolts of electricity shooting out from outlets. I've heard about all that. Uh, even the, the glass uh, fuses popping out, I can believe. But just, you know, large holes in the ground as as well as uh, like, yeah, look like a bomb went off at that uh, at the Bigford farm there. Uh, again, it's just it's very strange. But I, like as you were alluding to, because it's it's really to me um, could be. A combination of 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 all those factors and varying percentages like it, it could be man-made but so unexpected from something that they weren't even considering what about an anti-satellite weapon i mean i don't know the state of technology at the time but let's say that the russians were using lasers to destroy american satellites and they pointed it at a satellite and they missed but you know but however I don't know how a satellite could generate that much power and fire more than once or twice before it would be useless. So, well, know. it wouldn't be. Uh, uh, I'm guessing if you're if you're talking that route, it's uh, you're talking about a charged particle weapon, uh, but it would be yeah, it would be probably ground based. Now, I do know I did read something about uh, you know they're trying like mid air, uh, you know, missile defense systems using very high powered lasers and. The size of these lasers and the amount of energy uh, that would be required to to do that, you have to mount them on a 747. And of course, the other problem is that you don't know when a missile attack is going to happen, so these things would have to be flying around constantly at, yeah. at great expense. So it's possible. Yeah, we there is technology, and I guess I think from what I that would be late 80s technology. Is that yeah, that's possible, but. Um, you know, these you, you don't know the origin also of, of when these things have been uh, experimented on. You know, things like the Nazi bell, there's all kinds of Foo Fighters, things like that. It's it's all somewhat connected. And, of course, it's underground and, and black ops and all that. And so you don't know, um, you know, the timeline of development. But I would say that uh, this being that not that long ago, um, you're right in the, uh, the sweet spot of... Uh, of technology and modern day uh, advancements in science. 
Absolutely. And I just think it's incredible that something like this happened here in little Atlanta, Canada, but also it's <laughs> it's incredible how forgotten it is. Very few people know about this, even on Bell Island. Like I was um, trying to get in touch with some family members or eyewitnesses of, of the original boom and half the people on this island that I talked to, even ones with the last name Bickford, had no idea what I was talking about. Wow. Wow. I don't think Scott, Forrest, and I were able to figure anything out. But regardless, it was fun to chat with the two hosts of a favorite podcast of mine about the Belle Island boom. That said, I can't recommend their show Astonishing Legends enough. If you're the type that likes to dive deep into mysteries, you gotta check them out. I found them after they released an epic five or six hour long series about the history and story of Oak Island. If you go through their past episodes, I'm sure you'll find a topic you dig. But if you still aren't ready to move on from the Belle Island boom, I'll be releasing something special to the patron feed that you're not going to want to miss. During the production of the series, I was very fortunate to get in touch with the current owner of the Bickford farm, Cynthia Bickford. Cynthia was actually in the home at the time of the boom. However, then she was just a young girl. If you want to hear what Cynthia has to say, I'll be releasing my conversation with her to the premium feed for anyone who's interested in learning even more about this strange story. And with that, I'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. But before I wrap this up, I want to end with some thanks. First of all, a huge thank you to Scott and Forrest for taking the time to unpack this mystery with me. I'm a huge fan of their show, Astonishing Legends, and it's an honor to welcome them here on Nighttime. Also, a huge shout out to my musical collaborators, the Canadian bands Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause, who provide the musical and ambient themes for nighttime. And of course, for the biggest thanks of all, a massive thank you to everyone who's listening, as without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my time on the show. For anyone out there who wants more nighttime, please consider supporting my patron campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And then, for just a couple dollars more, you can access the Nightcap After Show episodes, in which I and a guest climb even further down the rabbit holes than what you'll hear in the main episodes. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Aaron... Todd and Jack Luna, I appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by recommending the show to your friends. And if any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to provide feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.